um, can be a bit confronting. I have had a Goodell Airway put down me in part of a simulation <laughs> before. Um, I've also had uh, sternal compression beginnings of somebody trying to do CPR on me, which was stopped very quickly. So you need to be um, a little bit game for a laugh if you're going to be yes. a patient. So no, I, have, a I haven't seen patient. someone try to um, attempt a vaginal examination on someone pretending to have an eclamptic seizure as well. So. Yeah, I, I had an incident of bimanual <laughs> compression during a simulated PPH that... Um, left everybody a little bit traumatised afterwards, but that's the <laughs> risk that you take. Welcome to episode 38 of the Ups and Gani Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back. This week uh, I have a, uh, uh, a new interviewee on the show with me, uh, Dr. Katrina Kelbert. Uh, thanks for coming along, Katrina. Hi Roger, it's nice to be here. Um, so this week I thought I'd uh, in- interview Katrina and ask her a little bit about uh, one of her passions, which is um, simulation in obstetrics and gynaecology. So um, thanks for coming along. Um, how would you describe yourself to the listeners, uh, or those listeners that don't know you, uh, in, in uh, three or four sentences, Katrina? Yeah, I'm, I'm a senior trainee in obstetrics and gynaecology here in Australia. Um, I started my life as a trainee in the UK, um, got up to the end of my training programme in the UK, in which I also had an interest in simulation training, um, and then took some time off to raise my family, so came back and did my training again for the second time. So I've had a slightly unique journey of being a trainee for nearly 20 years in two different hemispheres, which gives me quite a good perspective on training and what works and what doesn't work. And so tell me, Katrina, um, how did you first get interested in simulation? What was sort of, uh, how did it all evolve? I started with a mentor of mine who might be known to some of your listeners, um, Tim Draycott, who's Professor of Obstetrics in Southmead Hospital in Bristol. Tim was my senior registrar when I started training in the UK um, and had a strong interest in in simulation, which eventually um, ended up with Tim developing the prompt course, which many people will be familiar with as kind of one of the global leaders in obstetric simulation. So Tim invited me to go and um, get involved in the project developing the first prompt mannequin, um, which we did with a company called Limbs and Things in Bristol. And we went down and had to look at various skin surfaces and tissue surfaces to feel what felt realistic and see how the model moved and articulated. The first model had um, a metal skeleton, which was really great for making it articulate like a real baby, but it was difficult to make joints that were sufficiently robust to undergo training. So we went through a few iterations and um, ended up developing the model, which eventually became marketing as, marketed as the first prompt model. So it was through Tim that I started um, and carried on from there, really. All right. Before we get into some more um, detailed discussions about simulation, I thought um, I just want to bring it back a little bit because there might be some people uh, here who uh, simulation is pretty um, new. So... Uh, I don't want to sound facetious, but I thought maybe we should start off with a with a what is a, a simple question like what is simulation and why is it useful? I mean, why don't we just read some textbooks, go to a lecture, or even you know maybe listen to podcasts because uh, you know <laughs> that's a lot easier than setting up a simulation, isn't it? So what what is simulation? Why do you why do we think it's useful? Yeah, it's a good question um, <clears throat> and probably something we should continue to think about when we're designing simulation because at its heart, simulation just simply means. Um, pretending to do something. So if you give a baby a bottle of milk to feed from, then you have simulated a breastfeed. So that's a very simplistic model. 
I think when people think about simulation, they tend to think of high-tech sim labs and sim man and um, Noel and the other trademark models that are very um, high-tech and provide high realism. But simulation just means pretending to do something. So the main advantage of it is that you can pretend to do something without causing any harm to anybody. So if you're pretending to do a procedure on a, on a model or a robot and something goes wrong, as it naturally does as part of a learning curve, then you haven't caused any, any patient harm or any harm to any person. So it's a safe way to learn in what should be a safe environment um, and hopefully mean that when you hit real patient care, you're not starting the beginning of your learning curve on a real person. I suppose the point of it really is to achieve that sort of 10,000 hours of competency that's talked about in various different fields to say that you need to do something a number of times before you're slick and competent at it. So simulation gets your first 2,000 hours done without you having to practice on a real patient. That's right. And I, um, and I guess it's really useful for these those rare events that we um, will only ever see a few times in our careers um, as well, like anaphylaxis or... Um you know, really, really unusual things, isn't it? Because we can't really ever learn or practice on patients even, even then, can we? Because if we only see it once every 20 years, uh, there's, that's right. there's no other way of learning those sorts of things. That's right, and that's the basis of one of my favourite quotes about simulation, which comes from the pilot, Sullenberger, who crashed um, his aircraft on the Hudson River, um, who said that he'd spent a lifetime putting small deposits into a bank of simulation and training in order to make a really big withdrawal on the day that that accident happened, because... Nobody could have predicted that, simulations didn't predict that, but they allowed him to practice for emergencies so that when an unpredictable emergency happened, he swung into action and he knew what to do. Yeah. All right. Um, so can you tell us about the simulation teaching that you've been involved with over your career? Um, you've told us about the early start already uh, in Bristol, um, but, but perhaps uh, maybe a bit more about what happened after that and how, how it's evolved you know, and what, uh, what you've been up to. Yeah, so I, I started being a... a an observer or, or a passive participant in simulation um, and graduated up to being a patient simulator um, which is a unique part of simulation education where a real person acts as a, as a patient. Really really good and really useful for learning how to do histories or um, learn, getting the patient point of view. Um, can be a bit confronting. I have had a Goodell Airway put down me in part of a simulation <laughs> before. Um, I've also had uh, external compression beginnings of somebody trying to do CPR on me which was stopped very quickly so you need to be um, a little bit game for a laugh if you're going to be yes. a patient. Yeah, I have, I have seen patient. someone try to um, attempt a vaginal examination on someone pretending to have an eclamptic seizure as well. So. Yeah I, I had an incident of bimanual <laughs> compression during a simulated PPH that um, left everybody a little bit traumatized afterwards but that's the <laughs> risk that you take. Um, so I did that for a while. I've also been involved in the university simulation programs that we run here at UWA, um, including the um, Guyney Teaching Associate Program, where volunteer patients come in and let students do examinations on them. So that's another example of a really brilliant use of simulated patients, where students get a really unique perspective from the women who volunteer to do that. It's fantastically useful. Um, I've done quite a lot of obstetric simulation, both here in King Edward and in other hospitals around um, the Perth metro area in a sort of travelling teaching type programme. I find that when um, I go to emergency departments around the city and say, okay, we're going to do some simulation today, what is your version of an obstetric emergency? The most common response I get is that they would like to do normal vaginal delivery because they see that <laughs> as, as an emergency, which isn't quite how we would conceptualise emergency, but so useful 
um, for departments that, that are a bit worried about that to be able to do it in a safe way with simulation. And there's a really great interface when you're working with emergency department teams where the obstetric side is really well managed by the labour team with the PPH drugs and they swing into action. And then when it evolves into an arrest situation, the ED staff start to get comfortable and the obstetric staff start to get really uncomfortable as they swing into their standard resource algorithms. So um, there's a really great interface there between different areas that different people are, are interested in. And more recently, I've been involved in designing some simulation education. We ran um, Australia's first obstetrics and gynae sim wars event at the Ranscog ASM in 2016, which was a huge multidisciplinary live on stage simulation involving action and cameras. We used to sim on model and had three competing teams from around Australia and New Zealand. Um, we ran that as a plenary at the, the Ranscog ASM and it was really exciting. It hadn't been done before, really multimedia simulation event. Um, and um, that sort of showcase simulation to an audience who weren't all very familiar with it at the start of that. So I've gone, gone run the gamut from learner through to participant through to um, now designing simulation education. Um, your comment about um, you know, people not uh, knowing how to do a normal vaginal delivery reminds me of when I was an intern on the orthopaedic ward back in New Zealand where uh, we had a, a woman with a fractured um, tibia who gave birth on on the ward and I can still remember the look on the um, orthopaedic senior registrar's face as he uh, delivered this baby it yeah. was priceless <laughs> he said he wanted to put a he wanted to put a plate and screws over a vagina to, yeah. hold, to hold it in until the neonatologist arrived um, <clears throat> so um, what do you think of the challenges to simulation training you know, what are because uh, uh, there are quite a few um, you know logistic financial interpersonal training uh, those sorts of things you know it sounds like it's a really well, you know, I think lots of people agree it's a really great way of training people, but um, there are some challenges to getting it up and running. There definitely are. Um, we, we looked at what the challenges might be in our organisation. We did an organisation-wide survey in 2012-13, um, asking everybody in the organisation what they thought the barriers were. And really, they, they came down to um, it takes staff off the shop floor and away from clinical care was one barrier that people identified but another one which um, was interesting was that people don't feel safe during simulation they think that they'll be criticized or they'll be put on show um, and yep. then treated um, unfavorably if they make mistakes and nobody likes to make mistakes in a public environment so I think there are bar there are logistical barriers it is difficult to organize and run especially a larger scale simulation involving high-tech equipment but I think the main barrier is that people find it easy to say no. There's no risk to learners to sit at the back of a lecture and take notes passively, but there's a high risk to learners to get involved in something where you're on show and your clinical judgment or reaction times might be um, perceived as being inadequate. So I think the main the main barrier is, is from learners feeling unsafe in it. And uh, what do you think are some, some solutions to that? Getting people to train with other people that they know well and trust, or uh, you know, rather than thrusting them into a, a team of uh, of other people who are strangers, or uh, or is it easier with strangers? Uh, any, I, any any other? Any I think other it's solutions? easier with with learner, with trainers that you trust. But I think an essential component of that is that the trainers need to be trained themselves in how to provide debriefing and feedback. I think when you talk to people about their negative experiences with simulation, it nearly all comes down to a debriefing or a feedback session that didn't go well. 
Um, when learners feel that they were laughed at or they weren't taken seriously or they were ridiculed in a public environment, they'll disengage from simulation and the work that you have to do to bring them back to the table is significant. So yes, I think it's about the learners and readying them for the event, but most crucially I think it's about the trainers and um, training them to provide that feedback and that debriefing in a, in a safe and constructive way. And perhaps uh, designing the the scenario and the and, and supervising the um, um, the scenarios that unfolds to make sure it stays safe and and becomes supportive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's really useful. Um, the next kind of thing I was going to ask you about. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of people in, uh, out there think that um, simulation requires all these really um, expensive pieces of equipment and, and you know high fidelity uh, models, etc. Um, you know, or, or um, simulation facilities with lots of um, expensive IT equipment, etc. Is that is that um, always the case, or is actually uh, some of the low fidelity, simple simulation just as useful as well? And you know, maybe if that is the case, we could do simulation a lot more often and get more get more hands on experience using it. Definitely, I, I think um, simulation is one of those areas where there's different horses for different courses. So we ran a simulation workshop just last week here in King Edward looking at um, obstetric anal sphincter injury and repair and we used two different simulators. One was a set of pig sphincters that we were donated by Lindley Pork Butchers um, which were absolutely fantastic because the model anatomically is very close to mm. a human sphincter um, and made for very realistic training with excellent um, identification of the anatomy and the technique. And the other was um, cardboard blue roll inserts with elastic glued around them. And they were both equally useful in that workshop because the elastic let them see where the suture should be placed exactly to get an overlapping repair, conceptualize that in 3D, which is much more useful than looking at the photographs on, or pictures on a board. And then the, the pig models let them see what the anatomy was like. So a low fidelity and a medium fidelity model used together worked really, really well. You don't need a fancy model with layers of different rubbers to do that successfully because actually the cardboard roll with elastic glued around it worked just as well. However, if you were going to look at a really complicated obstetric or, or medical event up to and including a resuscitation with a maternal collapse and a perimortem caesarean, then the more realistic your mannequin, there, there the more it will respond to the interventions that are put in place by the team around it, and there is a benefit to that. So I wouldn't ever dismiss the use of expensive or high-fidelity equipment because it definitely has a place. But if your unit doesn't have that or you're somewhere where that's not attainable, you can still give simulation training a go. And I've done some really great simulations with um, ED training, looking at perimortem caesarean, using a simulator that I built completely from Red Dot with... Um, a basket and a plastic shower cap stretched over it and a layer of glad wrap and a, and a bath sheet over the whole thing um, simulating the layers of the abdomen that you would have to go through in a perimortem arrest, perimortem caesarean and it, and it worked really well so there's a place for all of it. Um, now uh, I'm not fully aware of all the different types of courses that are run in um, uh, Australia and New Zealand on um, uh, obstetric and gynecological simulation but I know there are a number of different courses available here in Australia so without sort of being um, too biased or giving a plug I was wondering if I could ask you because I think you um, have a bit more knowledge in uh, 
perhaps myself and the listeners, uh, what are the different courses available and just in a sort of um, give us a bit of an overview of um, the pros and cons and where they're available and who runs them, just just for our sort of knowledge. It would, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, there are several courses around Australia and New Zealand. I suppose one of the first courses that arrived was the ALSO course, um, which is very well established. Um, Australia is not the only place that run ALSO. ALSOs run as large weekend-long courses with multidisciplinary trainers and learners um, from obstetrics, including GP, obstetricians, retrieval, medicine guys, midwives and obstetricians. Um, It's run as a a course that you have to pass, so there's a pass-fail element to that, including an exam in several centres around um, Australia and New Zealand. Prompt is probably one of the newer comers to the scene, which is now the RANSCOG endorsed training. Um, Again, came out of the UK and Tim Draycott, who I mentioned earlier. Um, Prompt is more aimed as a in-situ simulation, so it's run in your own unit with a team from your own hospital, as opposed to also, which is run with an external faculty. Um, And probably the biggest third course in Australia is MOE, which is aimed more at the senior obstetric end. So the MOE course includes things like maternal trauma um, that you might not necessarily see every day on on a labour ward. So each of the courses is structured slightly differently and each has its own advantages and disadvantages. Um, There's an evidence base around for for how to do obstetric training, but you've got to bear in mind what you want your outcomes to be when you're trying to figure out which course is the right one for you. Um, Prompt has great results and is the one that um, has really been associated with a big improvement in clinical outcomes and that seems to be because it's run in situ in their own environment so the team who work together train together and the idea of prompt is that 100% of staff on a unit should be trained annually so it really creates a great awareness in a hospital um, and expertise within a team who work together um, that they're all training together and moving towards the same goals. Also in MOE are probably a little bit more aimed at individual skill development, which has a place um, and really useful in the, in the broader um, spectrum of things. So each of the courses that's available has, has something different to offer. What's, uh, so what's new in simulation, do you think, and uh, where is it heading in the future? So um, the things are uh, like, you know, what about virtual reality, some new technologies, or even just some new approaches? You've already mentioned the in-situ sort of team training, which is really interesting. Uh, it makes sense to me. Um, but what else is new? Yeah, so in obstetrics and gynae, um, there's probably more developments on this in the gynae area than the obstetric area, um, and some good evidence now that virtual reality systems really translate to improved clinical outcomes in, in laparoscopic simulation. The problem, of course, with VR systems is they do tend to be expensive, so we haven't abandoned box trainers. There's a place for for all of that, but some of the VR things with haptic feedback are are really great at tracking individual trainees' progress. One thing I think is really exciting in simulation is that you can make individual um, simulations for an individual patient. So if you had a patient with a particular MRI appearance of tumour that may or may not involve surrounding organs, um, 3D printing will allow you to print that tumour and the surgical team to practice on um, a situation, a simulated situation that is actually patient specific. So I think that's a really interesting area to expand with in gynaecology that we haven't really embraced yet. 3D printers, we don't have one in King Edward just yet. <laughs> maybe one day yeah. the budget will. We haven't even we'll got a, um, to a hot water system that works in the tea room. <laughs> <laughs> so there are barriers. We've identified those already. 
But um, I, yeah, I think some of the bringing simulation back from larger scale things to looking at individual patients or, or individual clinical situations using real patient data is an interesting application. So it's, it's expanding it out, but it's also bringing it back to what is the most important thing, which is keeping it patient-centred. Yeah, that's great. All right, just to round things off, uh, so if there's any listeners out there who are really passionate, have maybe done a little bit of simulation and really enjoyed it, but also passionate want to sort of become uh, eventually a trainer or a facilitator and get involved in, um, uh, in helping run simulations, that sort of thing, do you have any advice on what sort of pathway they should follow um, to get them up themselves up to speed and, and to help set up perhaps some simulation in their own institution or perhaps contribute to a simulation that's already going in their institution? Yeah, my advice would be just do it. Um, there are lots of ways that you can do simulation. You can buy a doll and have a play. There's lots of equipment around you can look at. There are loads of online resources to give you some inspiration and some great publications and work coming out of um, Australia. Uh, Deborah Nestel is the editor for Advances in Simulation, which is one of the large journals in this area. She works in Melbourne. In Obzengaini, Bexarbo in Melbourne and Sarah Janssen's in Brisbane, really leading these areas, and Doug Barkley in New Zealand, are all part of the RANSCOG Simulation Training Advisory Group. So that group has a Twitter presence and is available online. So if you Googled simulation in ONG, there would be lots of resources you could look at and lots of inspirations um, that could help you build it into your own practice. But really the best way to do it is to call a mate, tell them that you're gonna have a go on labor ward and just do it. Okay, and I guess um, so. So uh, we we did mention earlier on in the um, in the interview that um, so learning how to debrief safely and sort of perhaps that uh, key communication skill of um, um, debriefing and, and that sort of thing. Are there any courses or places? I, I know around the anaesthetic world, I went to a few courses a few years back, which was really useful, um, where some sort of your experienced uh, instructors etc taught you how to do that in, in a safe way is there mm. anything similar that you know of that there, you can there, recommend? Are, there are lots of um, published models on how to debrief um, it it turns out if you look at the evidence base that actually most teams who debrief develop their own model and their own style over time and most yeah. people use a blended model um, so but there are there are resources available that will teach you about the basics about debriefing what Pendleton debriefing looks like and those sort of simplistic um, kind of ways to start. Um, certainly there are lots of published resources. I'm not aware of any Obzengaini specific debriefing no. courses, but I think if you stick to the gentle rule of keeping your learners safe um, and treating other people like you would like to be treated if you were going for feedback, you won't stray too wrong. All right, we might wind it up there. Thanks, Katrina, that's been very illuminating and um, thanks for sharing all your um, experience with us. Uh, we'll have to definitely get you back on the podcast with uh, with another. I've got another couple of topics in mind. Even just talking to you now, I've thought of a few. Okay. Thanks, Roger. I Thanks look forward lot. to it. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please go to the Apple Podcast menu and rate us and give us a review. Um, and also feel free to go to the website, uh, org, where there will be links to relevant articles and show notes. Thanks for listening.